Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi everyone, good morning. Welcome to day two of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name's Amanda Stibel. I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan, and I'm excited to introduce our next panel, Skin in the Game, Sports Gambling's Emergence in the US. On today's panel, we have Sharon Otterman, CMO of William Hill US, Andrew Ashenden, CCO of Perform, Doug Kazarian, sports betting analyst at ESPN, Kip Levin, president and COO at FanDuel, and Matteo Montevardi, US president of Sport Radar. Our moderator today is Jeff Ma, who is currently the SVP of product and analytics at Duetto. Our panel will last 45 minutes with 10 minutes at the end for questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can do so through Twitter using the hashtag betting to win. And with that, I'll hand it over to Jeff. Thanks, Amanda. So the moment is here, the moment we've all been waiting for. I think I've been doing this panel in some way, shape, or form at Sloan for like 12 years. And every year, we would say that sports betting is between 5 to 10 years away from being legal. Um, with PASPA being overturned, sports gambling is now not illegal, and it can be approved basically on or, or legalized on a state-by-state -state basis. So the first question I want to throw out to the panelists, and um, any of you guys can respond. We can go one by one or whatever. But I, I want to know what you guys think this industry looks like in 20 years yeah. and where, what it's going to look like, if it's going to look more like fantasy sports or more like a financially regulated, a regulated financial market. I'm happy to kick it off. 20 years, I, I, it's going to be exciting to see what it looks like in a year. We haven't hit a year yet. Uh, I think in 20 years, it's going to look so much different because when you look at cultures around the world, the stigma is going to be out of sports betting and it's just going to be part of our culture and what we do. So I don't think it's going to look like either of the two. I think it's going to be totally um, ingrained into the American culture. The stigma is not going to be out. We're going to see some William Hill logos on player uniforms. Like it's going to be completely different than the way that it looks today. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, it's going to, it's going to be a very liquid market. So you, you have to assume that all of the states in some way, shape or form are going to regulate, you know, and hopefully that regulation will become more favorable over time. Equally, you'd like to think that actually there will be you know, the ability to bet you know, across boundaries, across state lines, and actually that will encourage a global, a bigger pool of liquidity. And then in terms of you know, player habits, Actually, you know, you're going to see, I think, over time, sharper punters because I think the environment's going to become more data rich, more analytics rich, um, and, 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 and I think you're also going to see in the U.S. in-play betting, uh, which is 60, 70, 80 percent of turnover across sports books outside of the U.S., start to become, you know, a, a big part of the U.S. ecosystem and lots and lots of turnover you know, across those markets. And then the fundamental that I think we discussed backstage was a lot of focus is on. Um, domestic sport over here, but actually to really realize the potential of liquidity, 
you know, you've got to look outside of the US sport. So they're only on, you know, between 12, 12 and midnight over here, roughly speaking. Then there's half the day where you've got all sorts of other global sport where, you know, people want to bet right across every hour of every day. Like we, we know that from, from, from every other market. So I think that's going to be a key part of the conversation. And, you know, as we speak, the Premier League's on. There's no US sport on. La Liga's on. So um, I think that will change. But I don't think it's a question of one or the other. I think you're also going to have, um, you know, player markets and player prop markets will, will obviously grow in prevalence as they have everywhere else in the world. So I don't think it's a question of financial trading or hobbyist. I think that the market will evolve so you, you satisfy the needs of both. It's a great question because I think we're all trying to figure that out, whether it be media companies or providers in exactly in the space, and anyone who says it with any sort of certainty, what they think is going to happen or what they know is going to happen is lying because this is uncharted territory. We want to find parallels, whether it be fantasy or something like that. I've been trying to think of, is it the gold rush? Is it fantasy? Is it maybe the internet arriving in the, in the 90s? I, I don't think there's anything like this because it's so untapped on so many levels yeah. that we've discussed because people are trying to figure out year one and year 20. but. It is fascinating because we've seen sports evolved because of the consumer, right? The NBA Finals, famously in the, in the, in the 80s, were tape delayed, right? And now it's everything's on your phone and all that stuff. So there really is no parallel to compare it to. And, but I think the focus is really on year one and how to monetize it. And from a media standpoint, what's the appetite of the consumer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to predict out, but I think you can look at what's already happening in New Jersey as a, a good indicator. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we launched the FanDuel Sportsbook app, you know, beginning of September. And, you know, we, we always talked about it's going to take a long time for U.S. customers to get uh, comfortable with in-play betting. I mean, we're already seeing north of 50% of our handle on NBA games in play. So it's already happening. I think the real question mark is how quickly states um, are going to regulate and really regulate the same way that you know, New Jersey has, which I think has set a, a really good standard and model because a lot of the other states that are now going through the process of legalizing it are starting with retail only and so on. So it's really about how fast is mobile going to get, and mobile where you don't have to go, like in Nevada, to a retail location and sign up. Um, you know, how fast is that going to happen? And I think reality is right, the, the size of the illegal market was absolutely all the predictions, I, I'd say now. Um, definitely the higher end of that range. Looks like it's possible. Um, and, you know, if it's going to go slow and retail only and so on, it's going to take a long time to convert those customers over. Yeah. I, I believe that uh, the preliminary indications that we have in New Jersey are, are, are really showing the trajectory where the uh, consumer adoption is going, which is mobile and uh, uh, in play. Uh, I also believe that uh, 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 it's going to be uh, more and more regulated. Uh, this is really, uh, if we look at the gaming business uh, uh, as overall ecosystem, it's a highly regulated business, extremely regulated, more regulated than the financial markets, going back to your point. So regulation is going to be uh, increasingly more important, uh, not only integrity, but uh, uh, social responsibility, player protection. Uh, are going to be uh, important agenda items that needs to be addressed by the gaming commissions. Um, I also believe that uh, the U.S. has a different ecosystem. Uh, meanwhile, we see in Europe uh, uh, a clear uh, split between sports betting and the media business. Uh, I see these two verticals at one point converge. 
and uh, uh, I would be surprised if in 20 years uh, uh, you will be able to place a bet while, while you watch uh, a game or uh, you will see sports betting being one of the uh, pre predominant content uh, on, uh, uh, on the broadcasters. So these are, in my opinion, the two largest uh, uh, trends that, uh, that will happen. So I guess, I guess my question would have been better served to say, do you see it becoming more recreational or more financial? And like, what direction does, do we, does it take? It's, to me, it's a form of gaming. Form of gaming is... It's recreational. Uh, not necessarily. When you look at the distribution of the, of the players, typically 20% of the players are making 80% of the revenues. And right. these are it's like the big wheels. Any, any, any financial, any, any financial. So to a certain so extent, there is different. definitely that component will continue and will remain. We will be obviously more uh, recreational aspects uh, around the so more casual 20 players. 20% of people that you're making 80% of the revenue yes. off, do you think those people will be recreational or more financially motivated? I think we'll be more financially motivated. Interesting. Personally. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, if you look at our product, it's very much um, uh, built for recreational customers, right? We do 250 bet types for every game right now in the NBA and the NHL and, and so on, right? That's trying to sort of gamify the experience. And, but, but certainly, you know, if you look at our customer base, it's a, it's a mix, right? So there's a, a long tail of uh, recreational customers and we're seeing more and more recreational customers come in, you know, as, we, um, as time passes. Um, but, but certainly at the top end, there are people who are financially motivated and, and treating it like a, a market. So it's interesting, um, Sharon, when you and I talked before, you, you mentioned that you thought the growth in this industry really would come from the recreational better, right? Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and sort of your approach or William Hill's approach towards catering towards that recreational better? Yeah, I, I, look, as, as Americans who watch a lot of sports, we put a lot of hours into it, we know our stuff. And I think that they're the opportunity for sports fans to materialize their, their knowledge is entertainment now in the US and put $5 on the game on the chance to win $84,000. That, that's what we do as sports fans. We judge odds every day, even before the way that we look at the world um, is through odds and the way that we look at game. I knew Tom Brady was gonna throw 500 yards. And I think that, that market of now that you can do it legally and safely is just gonna continue to grow. And there's a big entertainment market out there for just around the sports fan itself. But so it's interesting to think about the idea of these two juxtaposed positions where you're saying that you believe that like this 80%, this 20%, 80%, and Kip, you're saying that you believe that there's going to be these people that are financially motivated, which is different than the recreational angle, right? So how do we, you know, which world do we think grows the overall? So ultimately, regulators care most about what? Like Access. Right. Revenue, right? Sure. That's why we're doing this, I would assume, right? And they want money, and if the handle isn't big and we don't grow the overall industry, they're gonna look around and they're gonna say like, well, why do we even bother doing this, right? So what is, you know, I would assume that the six of us all have some vested interest in this industry being successful. How do we think we grow that handle as quickly as possible? I mean, I mean the, the most obvious way is, you need to create an environment where you're not disadvantaged versus the offshore, because that is where all the money is. I mean, and it's huge. And you know, I think you know, I was chatting about it with 
with Kip just before this. Like, it, it, we can talk about this being a relatively nascent market, but actually, you know, this is ingrained to a level within the culture already where people are betting already, so they understand that. So the challenge is to bring all of that, li that liquidity on shore, and the responsibility for that lies ultimately to a large extent with the regulators. So you, you sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to go back to the point that I already made, which is, you know, states that are focused on tax revenue and going after the illegal market, just they have to pass mobile. I mean, already in New Jersey, 80% of the handle in January was mobile. So by going after illegal market, you're basically saying your main competition is the illegal market. So taking away from the illegal market. Um, that actually crack, segues... And a crackdown on the illegal market, right? Like there's, there, I would imagine the companies are targeting... I mean, I believe it's substitution effect. Like, like, substitute, like they want to take away from the illegal market because we see the numbers, right? So like the states that had legalized betting in the Super Bowl paled in comparison to the total money bet in the United States incorporating offshore world and illegal markets. Mm. So it would be to crack down on the illegal market if you want. But that's like the wrong way to do it, right? Like if you're relying on the regulators to put these people out of business versus you innovating and making better products that take it away from I them. I think that's but, both. But you have to have a, li a level playing field in order to get rid of the illegal market, right? So tax rates need to be fair, right? You know, there's states like Pennsylvania where the tax rate is so high, it's very hard to compete against the illegal market. Integrity fees are going to take margins away from bookmakers and that illegal bookmakers don't have you, to pay integrity fees. Can you explain fee. integrity fee? Because some people might not know. Yeah, so there's, a, there's one school of thought that from a content perspective that the bookmakers should pay an integrity fee for, um, to make sure f to the leagues to because the sports fans are betting on their product that we should pay this tax instead of figuring out a commercially reasonable way to work with the leagues to, um, to make sure that the numbers work for consumers, not just for the leagues themselves. So they want us to pay a tax to make sure that there's integrity. All of these taxes on the margin is going to give us an unfair advantage to the illegal bookmaker who is, doesn't have to pay the taxes, doesn't have to pay integrity fees, and that makes it harder for us to compete. We want to compete on a level playing field because we want to keep consumers safe. If we keep consumers safe, will grow by volume. And there's a really big industry there, um, just to, with recreational betters alone. Um, we were talking a little bit about states. Um, how many states have gone so far legal? There's seven, seven? legal and seven legal. operational and seven. Yeah. OK. Which ones are doing it right? I think New Jersey is doing it quite well. Why? Uh, first of all, they uh, have a, a, a a good uh, uh, taxation that is not killing the bookmakers and allow them to um, uh, to generate margins. Um, second, they regulated uh, mobile uh, in conjunction with the with the retail, which is a very important component. And uh, uh, also the I would say the licensing process, although typically uh, the DG is a very difficult entity, has been quite smooth. So I think New Jersey is definitely model. Uh, that uh, if, if we can see that replicated in other jurisdictions, um, we will see a significant uh, adoption. Which state is doing it the worst? And what have you guys seen that you think like that the regulators have screwed up? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think that is going to be a, a progressive uh, evolution. Mississippi today, for example, um, is only retail. And, and clearly, uh, uh, that means they have, you have to go in. You need to go into a casino to place a bet, right? And, uh, uh, and clearly, that's limits dramatically, going back to what uh, Kip was saying before. 
limits dramatically the adoption. To see this business growing, you need to see mobile regulated. That is key. And I think even worse, you actually have some jurisdictions now that are looking at retail only with a monopoly provider. Like right? a lottery. No competition, yeah. right? like I mean, lottery. it's just, it's like, in general, it's, just, it's absurd, right? I mean, even just the idea that you need a retail shop to have them, I mean, imagine like you couldn't set up an e-commerce site unless you had a physical store. That's what they're basically but I, saying. But I think that there's something so important about retail. If you, if you look at banks, right, there's been a lot of online banks. There's some times where you just want to go into the bank to see that there's a person there, your money's in there, you need to talk to somebody. And I think of having the opportunity to have both, there's real people behind the counter in case you have a question. You want to deposit cash, you can go in there to do it. I think the magic is going to be a combination of online and retail. And I think each of these seven markets, they're all completely different right now, but we don't really know what the future model is going to be. It's probably a hybrid of everything that exists right now. No, I mean, I think New Jersey is it, right? Because you, you've got to have, the re, as you said, reasonable tax rate. You've got to have mobile and, and retail. I, think, I do think retail is important, though we would be obviously a more mobile-driven and online-driven business. Um, there is importance to the retail component, but they can't be tethered together, right? You can't be forced to go in there. Um, and then you, you can't limit the operators. Like, there's got to be competition because competition is ultimately going to drive innovation and great products for consumers and so on. Yeah, so l let's go back to this idea of um, growth in this industry and where the growth comes from. Because, you know, again, like, if the goal of everyone on this panel today, we're going to say, is to, to sort of figure out how we're going to grow the handle as quickly as possible in the United States and, and make this all a reality. Does the growth come from the recreational better, as you know, Sharon believes, or does it come from, or does it come from someone that's putting more money into the system, like an offshore book, like Pinnacle might believe? Like, what, where do you get, Do you think there's a place for both of those in the U.S., or do you think that really it's going to come from the recreational betters? I think there's a place for both. I mean, yeah. the, I'm a big believer in the, the large component of this is the entertainment value, and I think that it will. It's about just sort of how it's viewed and how it's consumed in the United States. My understanding, you guys please correct me, is like the European model is that it's very much a, an entertainment or a concession concept, right? You could, like we in the States go to games, leave without anything tangible. Like we go shopping, we come home with a pair of jeans, but we go to a game, we come home with an experience or whale watching or just something that doesn't have anything tangible. Betting is the sim similar concept, again, overseas in a, in a market that's much further along and spending 50 bucks on a parlay ticket or a bet is the same as what we would probably process in the States is 50 bucks on a bucket of beers and with your friends and watching for a couple, two, two to three hours. And that entertainment value is not perceived as wasting money in, in, in overseas. And here it would be like, oh, I lost and wasted 50 bucks on the game. Uh, so, so, so to grow that, and yeah. I just think it's going to come in due time. But my, you know, to your point, I mean, I'm fascinated with how legalization will evolve in something like New York, where you could have hedge funds, because people, a lot of people just want skin in the game, the name of the conference, but it's, and, but they may outsource. But a hedge funds are not gonna just want skin in the game. Hedge funds need to actually make money. Correct, but there is, you're right, so there's that component to it, but I, I do think that there will be people who want the, I don't know, picks done for them, or they just want to, they just want action on the games for the entertainment component, and want, an email when they get home from work to like what their picks are so they can watch the games with sort of a rooting interest. I do think that's gonna be that's gonna evolve in the in the in a place like New York. 
So Andrew, you've been involved obviously in a very mature betting market. Your company is sort of the leaders in, in providing a lot of the sort of data in that world. Um, how do you see, do you see a world where the U.S. can mature in a different way than Europe has, um, i.e.? So as I think through this myself, my point of view is like it's a kind of a no-brainer, right? If this became a financially, like more like a financial market, it would be bigger. Like there's just no way that's not the case, right? Now, could it ever really be that is the question. Because like you need just this sort of math, like you need about a lot more people betting $20 a game than one person betting 20,000. And if it's just handle that we're really striving for what regulators care about, that's ultimately where we need to go. So is there a reality or could you see a reality where this becomes more like a financial market where there are exchanges and things like that and there is just a small commission being paid versus you know, real, real what's happening in the bookmaking industry? I, mean, I think if, you, if you've got the long-term view on, I think you have to say you can imagine that. And, and I think there are, at the moment, there are so many barriers to that actually happening because of what we discussed in terms of state regulation, what you look at in terms of the Wire Act and, and prohibition of, of betting across states. And, and, and also the market that you're looking at, which is relatively immature in the sense that, you know, there's obviously been traditionally through places like Nevada, at least on the, on the, in, on the, in the regulated market, a focus on the, on the top leagues, whereas to really get the liquidity flowing through the entire betting ecosystem in the US, you need to be looking beyond just domestic content and, and more broadly. So um, absolutely, you can see that happening. And I think... But what do, what do you market, think has prevented it from happening in Europe? The, the, in, in Europe, well, it depends, depends where you're talking about specifically in Europe, but I suppose the, 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 the disadvantage that potentially Europe has versus the States is the fact that you genuinely are talking about individual countries, whereas actually in the States, with a market as big as it is, you could potentially look at, look, look at a scenario where there is liquidity across the whole country, which is obviously a very different scenario. So essentially you're saying like the sort of like bifurcation or whatever of the market and then not having enough liquidity across different markets or one market is the biggest hampering for it becoming like a larger sort of financial exchange. Uh, I think that's a, yeah, it's a considerable barrier, I mean, massively. But then if you look at the states as it stands right now, there are so many barriers that exist you know, legislatively, so you know, they need to be overcome. Yeah. But one point uh, has to be clear, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm less naive uh, thinking about uh, recreational players or entertainment. Today, you have a market out there that is worth $20 billion, which is the legal market. If you want to see growth... It's worth what? They say $20 billion. There are numbers all over the place, it's obviously. It's got to be worth a lot more than $20 billion. I was just but talking to someone that... No, worked. in revenue. It's in revenue. No, $20 oh, in revenue. No, no, in handles. Yeah. Who knows? But in terms of revenue, I mean, there are numbers out there that are completely different. But. Uh, my point is that uh, the opportunity, you were asking before, where you see the growth, the opportunity is taking that market and making it onshore, period. That is the lowest hanging fruit that we have. Besides being creative and make our life more complicated, let's make sure we can tap into that addressable market, regulated, which is a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the state, it's a win-win for the ecosystem, for the player. And I believe leagues, regulators, need to think uh, more business-wise about the opportunity, which unfortunately they don't at this point in time, because it's already there, in any case, the regulated market. Yeah, so I think, I think this is the point you're making, and Sharon, I think you made this really well, which is just this idea that the more friction 
that regulars put in the system, specifically around things like an integrity fee or whatnot, <clears throat> the much smaller chance that this is ever going to really replace the black market or we're going to be able to take money away from them. So, you know, what would you guys suggest to regulators, you know, as a way to foster innovation that allows, so I, I would agree with you on one side, like I don't like the idea that the innovation here or the TAM comes from like going after the existing market. Like to me, you want to grow an industry, you want to innovate because the problem is that innovation in sports betting is, is relatively non-existent when it comes to even just types of products that are offered over time, right? Yeah. Like a bet, I mean, even prop bets, everything, it's, it's just very simple. And like the things that have evolved and like, I would love to see this industry be forced to evolve more to actually have real innovation that yeah. comes in. And obviously now that it's legal, there's a much greater chance of that. Um, but I do, I do worry, and, and maybe this is about sort of like this idea of, of regulators putting a big, you know, putting a lot of friction that will prohibit this from happening. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the tax rates is a huge piece of it. On the innovation piece, though, I think when you look around the world of why there hasn't been innovation is it's a very rational transactional market around the world where it's about the offer, everyone's on the same technology stack. There's all these things that prohibit it versus here in this country, if we could start sliding glass doors, we see where the market went to, we start here with the consumer. What is the consumer, what's the American consumer need? What are they excited about in terms of sports? And you start building based on customer needs, not which bet 50, get 50, offer, offer, offer. And having your own technology stack here will also differentiate because everyone in Europe is pretty much on the same technology stack. So you launch one feature and then everybody has that feature. There's gonna be differentiations here because this market's gonna be so big. There'll be lots of really good competition and it will force a lot of that innovation as well. Yeah, look, I think the friction will get better over time. I mean, another friction point that people don't realize is like the, the big banks, a lot of the big banks don't allow credit card transactions even if you're a legal and regulated operator, right? So credit cards work 50% of the time. That's real friction, right? You, get, you have to get through putting your social security number in and doing all these things to register. You know, credit cards, the logical thing that we'd use to make your first deposit, and it works half the time. So I, I think those things will just get better over time as it becomes more prevalent. Um, you know, but uh, on the marketing side and, and the standing out, right, it's product innovation and then it's just making it fun. I mean, we're doing stuff here that's never been done in the market. Like, we paid out <clears throat> on Alabama to win the national championship in football 30 days before the national championship game. How'd right? that work out? It worked out, you know, as we had actually hoped because. It created this big story and buzz and so on. We got a ton of PR and then they lost, right? We'd already paid it out. We probably got, I mean, I don't know what the multiples are in the PR value and it became another story again, right? People got paid out in Alabama, they lost the game, you know, and uh, right, it's just a way to get cut through. I don't understand yeah. that. You paid out Alabama. Yeah. So it, I must not have been paying attention if you guys got all this good PR for it because that seems ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Again, right, like you think about your, we're but in That like to me lose, makes me, and Kip and I are friends, so I'm about to attack him, but it's fine. <laughs> I knew it was but, gonna happen. But time, that, so. that makes me lose so, like I have zero credibility to like feel like your business is a real business when you're willing to take that big a hit for the PR and the marketing angle of it. And it's, you're saying really that was more valuable to you than what you would have lost. And, then I feel like, so did you end, up having, you end up having to pay out both sides of that bet then, right? Correct, but it, look, it was 30 days before, right? So it's futures bets. So you'd imagine it's not as big a so number. So you didn't have that much volume. Correct. 
Got it. Wasn't the week of with all the ones. It wasn't the week of. It wasn't. Money line. You know, it was. Right. I mean, did you guys do the analysis that like, oh, this isn't going to be that big a deal because like these odds are so short anyways and whatnot? Like, 100 percent. Yeah. Got so it. Look, okay. I mean, now, again, I, now I feel a little better about you as a businessman. Trust so. me. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> Thank you. We know what we're doing. I mean, it's stuff that we do in Europe all the time. But again, those are the things that actually will get cut through. You know, and, and by the way, as a result, like we survey all the customers that are registering every day, right? And so we want to know where they're coming from. Are they people who have never bet before? Are they people who are betting offshore? Are they people who are just go to Vegas a couple times a, a, a year with their friends? And the percentage of people who have never bet before is growing. And the percentage of people who, um, who have historically bet on an offshore book is growing as well. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. So let's, let's go back to this idea of, of sort of like bookmaking and um, growing. You know, we have two people that work with bookmakers or work for bookmakers, um, William Hill and um, what do you guys go by officially, FanDuel? FanDuel. And there are philosophies in bookmaking around, you know, how you uh, cater to your user base or what kind of customer base you want. Sharon, I know that you've mentioned recreational bettors, and William Hill has obviously gotten a, a lot of uh, tough publicity um, since coming over to the U.S. and not wanting winning bettors, right? Like, they, the notion is that you guys will kick out people for, just for winning. And I'm not saying that's correct, but that is a rumor that has been spread, or there have been articles written about that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, and then we can kind of go into sort of this idea of what is the best way to run a sports book? Yeah. So let me be clear, it's not our publicity. We've been the victim of getting that reporting, which is not true. Um, we do not kick out winners. When folks have not um, been allowed to play, there's a lot of other reasons that actually go into it, and there's so much more to the customer story. I think we were picked on a little bit because we're the largest bookmaker in Nevada and with the most amount of customers, so it's easier to get picked on, but that is not true. We actually do want people to win. As we were talking about, it is Do you want them fun. to win consistently? Like, do you want to have people that you know are you like a losing happy, proposition for satisfied you? satisfied customers, and the, and the analytics prove over time, we have a business. We're not a non-for-profit. Honestly, like we are a we're actually a public company, right? We're a business. But at the end of the day, you want happy, satisfied customers that have fun playing. And so I think that, that the, the industry is picking on this thing that's actually really not true and taking some random stories and, and putting it together, you do with recreational betters, you want them to really enjoy it and to have fun with it. I and mean, we, um, well, what we about operate two betters? sports books here in Rhode Island. So you can imagine the Patriots, all the money was on the Patriots this year for the Super Bowl, right? And Rhode Island had a great experience with sports betting. And over time, we'll have a healthy business and fans will keep coming back. So I, I, I'm not sure it's a real thing of what is being yeah no and I, and I, I listen we, we talked about this behind backstage like there is a notion that you are a business you you have to make money and you make money in the business model that you have so you kept referencing recreational betters do you feel that you guys can cater towards professional betters meaning long-term winners or is that not where you consider to be your customer I think business? we look at our segmentation so differently than that right it's not a matter of the, the recreational long-term. We want people to have a high player value. They play with us for a long period of time, and sometimes they win, and sometimes we win. And over time, you have a, you have a good business. But the most important thing is about the transparency of the, and the authenticity of it. it. We offer fair odds. You know, it, for every other, every other business, we offer a price. People pay that price, or they don't. And there's nothing that's going on underneath 
the, or behind the curtain that we don't feel comfortable with. We want consumers to have a good time and have fun with sports betting. How about you, Kip? Do you guys? Yeah, you? I mean, I think we, we, as I said before, we, we cater to you know, all different types of players. We know that there are some players that may over time be net winners and, you know, uh, you know, across the spectrum, right? And so I think as long as we understand how our business is working and so on, we're comfortable with that. And look, there are also a lot of other reasons that I think get confused in this topic about why you might restrict somebody from betting, right? You know, we have a huge obligation around responsible gambling um, and so on. So I think the, the things get confused across the board, but um, yeah, look, we, we've, uh, we, we largely have a policy of we take money from you know, just about everybody up to the point where you know, we think that there's potentially a problem gambling issue to, um, to be aware of, so. Doug, do you have any thoughts in terms of you as someone that is, um, you know, obviously has covered gambling for quite some time and, you know, is, you, uh, no, you noted that you are a gambler yourself. Do you feel like this idea that, you know, what we're representing on this point of view is that, like, there is no such thing as banning someone from a sports book for simply winning. And I know that's not true, right? I know that's not true. Not, I'm not saying, like, William Hill or anyone specifically. I'm just saying, like, Sports betting is notorious, like you'll see it all the time, that people have trouble getting money down. And the reason they do oftentimes is because they've done too well or they've won. And there is like, you know, like if you read about it, there's a lot of models that they talk about. Um, a very popular, well-respected sports book that's offshore called Pinnacle that allows a lot of, you know, known, they're, they're, one of their slogans I think says winner's welcome or something like that because they, they're, they're known for that. But it is definitely different, right, because you know, what, what we were talking, Mateo, you said the overall handle in New Jersey was around what last year? I mean, sorry, the hold percentage? Uh, I think the DGE reported uh, in, uh, in January 4.5% was the hold. Right. And I know and that- Five and six in and, any case on average. So, so Pinnacle, and what, across what kind of handle is that in, in New Jersey right now? It was 385 million in January. 385 million, so pretty significant. Yeah. yeah. Growing, that's good, good for yeah. you guys. <laughs> but uh, what's interesting is, um, you know, Pinnacle's hold percentage, I know, is, is, is much closer to 1%. It's much smaller, but their overall volume is, is, is pretty significant, right? So it's just, it's definitely a different model um, to go after, and there's a lot of risk associated with it. Um, but I think it's just interesting because ultimately the idea that you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to have this conversation without, without like some acknowledgement that as a business model, like not catering to winning betters is, is part of that business model, right? Like, and, and if we, if, if you, are you saying, Sharon, that that's not the case? Just saying that there's so much more to the story, you know, as, as Kip said too, of that. Well, absolutely, when, right? And I'm sure it's totally, it's like a, a lot of it's been blown out of proportion and it's, it's edge cases and whatnot. Yeah. I'm just, I'm curious about it. And I, I, I'm not, it's not like, it's little, like if I had a choice to have a business where I could make 1% or 4%, 4% sounds better to me, just because it's I think bigger. there's a method to the madness to helping make that 1%. So the Pinnacle example, they have also narrower straddles, right? They have, they don't, the juice isn't as high because they have the volume to offset it. To, to, in, to bring in that volume, they lower the, the juice, right? That my understanding? 
Yeah, I mean, th there's a lot of reasons they have that volume, right? One of the reasons is that they cater towards people that are putting a lot of money in their system that they're not quite as afraid of being sharp or not. In the reach and obviously the volume. But like, if the US were to copy that model in due time and had the volume over across many states, I would, if I were working at one of those operations, would want that professional money for that information. And I would have maybe lower limits and bring and know the sharp side or whatever you want to say, call it. So I would, I would say that the professional better money would help me have a higher hold percentage because you can use their bets to help. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the premise. And so I'm, I, you know, it, it's an interesting discussion, but if they it, go hand in hand, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, they could go hand in hand. I should say. Well, I would say it's a great sales pitch to the people in this audience, right, who came here, were interested in getting into analytics in this industry, you know, Look, we take money from people that we know are probably going to win over time because it's interesting data to plug into all the models we have that are setting the prices of the future, right? So, Yeah, but if people ask me, like, you know, should I start doing analytics and sports betting, I tell them no, because it's just too hard to get money down if you're winning. Like, it's just the, that's the way it is. And I wonder if I, I was, I, I had a hope that maybe legalization would change that, and I'm not sure if it will. It, it'll be interesting to see. If we are able to, again, like going back to this whole idea of can we grow the overall pot as big as possible, well, one of the ways to do that is allow everyone to bet, right? As long as they're not felons or whatever, or they're not cheating, and like, I completely get that. As long as they're just legally or doing the right thing, transacting, um, I think it's letting everyone play, right? Win or lose, and then figure out your business to leverage them, et cetera. Um, let's talk a little bit about the business that Mateo and Andrew, you guys are both in around data and whatnot. Like, what, what role or, or how did you guys look at the U.S. opening as an opportunity for you? Like, what, what excited you when you heard that that was going to be the case? Um, I mean, the obvious, the obvious starting point is a new market to work with. So, you know, obviously we'd, we'd never worked in the market before. Um, I mean, I think for us as a business, and I'm sure, you know, Mateo is similar, you know, we had we have a lot of rights cleared in this in this market, um, both in relation to data, but also video. Um, so although that's not particularly prevalent at the moment, you know, a big chunk of our business is is um, derived from providing live video on the front end of, of bookmakers' sites and mobile apps and stuff. Um, so, you know, for us, obviously, we want to replicate that in, in in the U.S. and that's a big opportunity for us across sports that we work with closely already. Um, you know, there's obviously you know an opportunity for us across um, across um, domestic U.S. sport as well, um, and so you know we are we've been part of the um, you know a, 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 a forerunner in in the conversations that we've been having with the leagues um, to try and um, to try and access official rights as well. So from their, their competitions. So, um, but it's interesting because actually if you look at where we come from as uh, at this as a business. With a, with, a, with a video, with, with a business where video is so prominent in terms of revenues, you know, at, at this stage there is no um, there is no right that's been granted to anyone for video provision in the domestic market from from the big leagues, um, and I think that's unlikely to change in the short term. Um, and so, going back to the, the earlier point around betting on on, on non-domestic sport, I think for us there's a big opportunity around that um, in the time across that vast period where there is no U.S. sport and where actually you know, in running markets and, and betting markets alongside um, video pictures, it could, could be, you know, very successful in this market. Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly uh, this is a, for us, is a tremendous opportunity. Um, uh, we, uh, we have been in the U.S. now for uh, many, many years. 
we have over 400 people uh, in the US. Um, and uh, we have uh, official relationship with the leagues uh, uh, across the media and the sports betting spectrum. Um, we just signed an important global deal uh, with the MLB, where the official distributor of the uh, NBA data. We collect the data also on behalf of the NBA. We have, I believe, 90% market share in New Jersey in terms of data. Uh, clearly, we see this as a, an amazing opportunity for us. And, uh, we are very much like uh, Bloomberg for the financial market. So, so wait, if, we, if I want to use the NBA feed, I have to go through you to get it now? You have to go through me, yes. Okay. And so that's different than how it is in Europe, right? In yes. terms of, so in terms of yes. uh, soccer and whatnot. Well, there's a, there's a slight wrinkle in that because in the, in the, in the US, the NBA, the NBA data is non-official, isn't it? Non-exclusive, sorry. Excuse me? The, the NBA data in the US is non-exclusive. In the US, we have a market that uh, um, uh, basically we have few operators, but you need to go through one of these few operators that are offering NBA feed. There is an official feed, and you can only use that feed if you are a bookmaker and is distributed by few operators in the market at the moment. So that, and you're one of the operators? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So do you think that, in, so in that situation, we have, we're beholden to you, right, to sort of like produce the best product for us to create things, correct? To a certain extent, uh, what we do, uh, if you think about data, uh, everybody say data is the new oil. We actually produce the fuel. We take the oil and we build products around this data, and then we give to the bookmakers, which are the cars, so they can actually run their business. Uh, as I say, you can think about Bloomberg in the financial market. They power a lot of financial platforms with the data. We do exactly the same for sports betting operators. This is why the relationship with the leagues is, is so important, because uh, 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 we take uh, basically uh, all the data that they give us, which is not just uh, the data of what is happening in the game, but to think about also uh, the data of the players, live tracking data. And that is where I believe the new generation of prop bets and innovation will come. I mean, the ability to understand how the players are moving on the, on the field, defining better products and better uh, pricing. And, uh, uh, and so there is a, clearly at this point in time a very important codependency between uh, the pricing that these guys are generating and what the leagues are giving for as an information. Got it. Um, recently, the Major League Baseball came out and um, talked about not wanting or requesting bookmakers to not uh, allow betting on minor league games with a statement basically that there was too much opportunity for decisions that had nothing to do with the game to influence the actual outcome. Sorry, not minor league games, spring training games. Um, what do you guys, Sharon or Kip, do you guys have a take on that in terms of like how you feel about you know, did you listen to them? Do you, did you guys meet about that and say, well, maybe we shouldn't do my, um, spring training, or were you? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been doing, um, I think we did NFL preseason. Um, you know, we have been doing it. I think the, the important thing is we're generally aligned with their concerns, right? We don't, they aren't huge markets. Do you think there are real concerns there? Well, look, if you look at Europe and you, you're concerned about the integrity of it, right? like certainly there's more integrity issues at you know, lower division games, you know, um, sort of long tail tennis matches and so on. So there, there is a higher probability that there could right. be an integrity issue with it. I, I understand that concern. You know, that's factored into our, you know, desire to, to 
take bets or not take bets on a, on a market. We take that into consideration because, again, we're aligned. Like, you know, if we think that there's a concern, we're not going to put it up. You know, because if somebody has inside information or there's a chance that they have inside information, it's not worth it for us to take bets on that market. So, look, I think we go as, uh, you know, as we see that, you know, it makes sense to take bets on. And obviously, there's also the illegal market side of it, too, which is, right, if these are events that people are able to bet on the illegal market, again, that just becomes another pediment to, impediment to bringing people over. So you have to be able to compete with that. I think their concerns are very legitimate because that's how they feel but I don't think they're as informed as maybe we are in this space. But if you look at what they're about to, what's going on across the United States with legalization, I think their obligation to their, their league is, and where their offices is to fear the worst, right? Whether it be the Tim Donaghy scandal or something along those lines, I didn't think that was possible until, I, until, I, until it all surfaced. So I think the <coughs> leagues are doing their due diligence and whereas we, at least myself, kind of laughed at the notion of Sprig training being taken off the board and concerns of that. But I'm not working in a league office where the, the potential is so severe and I could fear the worst. So I understand their concerns because they're not as knowledgeable as maybe people who've been in the betting space for a long time. I think it's, they're in the information gathering phase of all this. So you don't think there are any concerns about spring training games or preseason football? I would not, but I also know that the limits are lower. And I would have to be, but I would not be concerned about that. I mean, we've seen, you know, is it Al Leiter, former big league pitcher, go to Congress and talk about some ridiculous prop bet scenarios that would never occur in its current form. But again, they're learning about that. I don't think Al Leiter knows a ton about the betting space. So I think they're literally flushing out, doing worst case scenarios because they have such a visibility being a major professional sports team in a, or sports league in America. Did you, Sharon, did you have any comment on this? Or? I'll just say that I think, you know, there's been concerns on whole different things over the years, but there hasn't really been a lot of integrity issues. It's been legal to sports bet in Nevada for a very long time, and you don't really see these issues. So I, I get the concern in a new market, and I love that everyone is being cautious in a new market, because again, the idea is transparency and keeping consumers safe. Um, but the history hasn't proven itself that this is actually a really big issue. So then do you find, do you guys all find the notion that the leagues need an integrity fee to be sort of silly? No. <laughs> I think that there's enough commercially viable options with the leagues that's a win-win on a sponsorship side instead of getting some tax that's going to prevent something that hasn't proved itself that it's a problem. And I, I go back to that that is going to really hurt us against the illegal bookmakers, and it's just not the best way forward. It is silly. Right. Yeah, You're saying yeah, it is silly. I, I yeah. shook my head before you finished the question. It's silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it is silly, the tax. <laughs> it's not silly the fact that the leagues should have integrity programs. Now, the way then the leagues uh, negotiate... But, you, but, uh, but if they ha should have them, they should have had them all along, right? If they really think that's a concern. And there's a lot of now, pieces of integrity that we're talking about, right? Like, you know, Anthony Davis not playing the second half of an NBA game, that seems not like the most integrity -ious, if that's a word, into whatever. Is now. You guys know what I'm saying. Isn't, there is so, no, I mean, isn't that the first thing they should worry about versus like another Tim Donahue scandal, which probably won't happen again because it's going to be so clear in people's minds that that's a, that's a, a real issue? Well, um, as I say, I think the market uh, uh, is somehow uh, catching up with the, with the industry standards uh, since we are 
uh, in a market that has been just regulated. Uh, so uh, clearly, <clears throat> they should have maybe integrity programs in place a long time ago. Uh, now that sports betting is regulated uh, and is becoming more and more, uh, uh, they say, distributed and uh, accessible uh, even to uh, casual players, uh, I believe the leagues should have integrity programs to monitor the players, to monitor the referees, and uh, using the technology that today is available and the data that today is available to identify potential issues. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because, I mean, we do, I've done a lot of work in data analytics in my life, and the idea of using data in a lot of these situations to find problems, I think, is, is challenging because I think you're going to get a lot of false positives also. But, but, I, but I think also this is where it comes back to the bookmakers, because actually you know, these guys, if there's an integrity concern, they, they see it very really in, in terms of you know, betting activity. Right. So it's not necessarily about so analytics. So just exposing that is, is a yeah, step so, in the so, right so, direction. So, so yeah. where, well, where this all needs to get to ultimately is there needs to be collaboration between bookmakers and, and right holders, because actually that is, the, that is the environment within which you get a proper integrity ecosystem and information flow. And that, that is what takes this market forward. And, and, you know, and, and obviously there's a lot of friction between right holders and bookmakers for various reasons connected with you know, fees and stuff, which, you know, which may or may not be you know, termed an integrity field, whatever. But ultimately, you know, the, the right holders want you know, their share of, 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 of the US sports betting industry. The bookmakers want the same, but it's that collaborative environment which is going to be, be, be ultimately beneficial for, um, for integrity purposes and player protections. And they're aligned. Like that's yes. the thing. They're both exactly. the same right. like yes. team in a, in a sense. Yeah. Well, so, we've, been, we've been offering integrity services since uh, uh, 2004, so since quite a long time. And uh, we have reported uh, over 8,000 cases of uh, potential collusions. And 300 out of these cases was actually, uh, then there were actions taken by the leagues or by the gaming commission. So clearly it's not a massive issue, but it's an issue, it's enough one in order really to it's your business, arm right? Business. So you got to find something. Well, well, I can tell you that uh, many of these uh, 300 players were actually fined or uh, expelled completely right. uh, from, from the league. Were those typically like mainstream or were they on the lower levels? They typically are on the lower level. So like a minor league basketball? Yeah, or, or, or tennis typically is it's an area, unfortunately, that uh, is always at, at risk. But again, the issue is not uh, where it happens. It's, and now what is the sample, how big is the sample, is uh, it shouldn't happen. And you need to put in place everything in order to make sure it will not happen. Uh, there's an interesting question here. I'll throw it out to you guys. Um, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is there a thought that convincing casual fans to gamble, which can be potentially addictive, unethical? Give, the responsibility piece is really, really important, like any industry, right? Whether it's spirits or anything else, is that we know how to be able to, it's, it's a game to enjoy, and, and we know the signs when it's gotten to not be fun anymore. And we all, starting in this marketplace, need to be incredibly responsible players and be able to offer things like controls and cooling off periods. And when you're in retail, notice all of those signs. And so there's always going to be a danger in it, but it's up to us on the responsibility to keep consumers safe. And that is very different than the illegal bookmaking marketplace. Um, okay. Uh, what, about, what about the idea of 
someone mentioned the idea of like a recreational versus a professional sports book. In other words, catering to different people. And I guess we kind of have that already, um, where there are some that cater more towards professionals and some that cater more towards. Um, Andrew, we were talking a little bit about some of these ideas, and, and you've mentioned this of um, some of the like large action that you see in non-US sports and how, um, how much the, the sort of like time windows can build interest in different sports. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I like almost like the tag, the tail wagging the dog in this case, where certain sports could become more popular because of yeah. gambling. Yeah, and I think look, I think there's there's two sides to it. So there is there's, there's a timing piece which we've talked about, and yeah, you know, Premier League's on right now. <laughs> Not a lot else, bomb, but I was I had a bet on that on the way down here. Um, there, <laughs> and La Liga. <laughs> um, but. But, but also beyond, beyond the timing piece, which is very obvious, and if you, you know, if you just plot it out and just look at where the leagues play hour by hour and season by season, where there's you know, huge gaps where actually just the MLB is on, for example, you can see the absolute necessity for non-domestic sport to fill that 24-7 schedule, particularly coming from different time zones. I think there's another layer on top of that, which is just some sports are just particularly good to bet on. And it's a kind of combination of the timing thing, but also the structure of racket sports like tennis, for example, where actually you know, the, the, the timing of the points and, and, and the duration of the rallies and stuff lends itself superbly to win running betting. So you know, there's, a, there's, there's a big opportunity there, not just based on timing, but also just based on you know, the, the, the sort of adaptability of, of, of a particular sport to betting. Um, so I think you know, that is a topic that doesn't really get too much discussion over here as part of the, you know, a, 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 an understandable focus on the leagues because that's where traditionally a lot of the cash out of the US has come from out of the regulated market. Um, but I think that's a topic that will get more coverage going forward. I, I think we're, I mean, we're really excited. We're obviously also in the horse racing business through our TBG business. And I think there's a huge opportunity for horse racing as sports betting you know, expands because again, there's a horse race on in America every couple minutes, right? And so I think that there's a big opportunity for sort of a comeback. I mean, if you look at our, all of our global businesses across the Paddy Power Betfair businesses in Europe and our sports bet business in Australia, uh, horse racing is the biggest sport for us by far. So I, it'll be interesting to see. I'm obviously optimistic and we're in the business and, and we're excited for it. But I do think it, it, sports betting opening up here creates a great opportunity for that sport. I would think baseball is the biggest room to gain for the live betting market mm -hmm. just the way the like the the lag between LeBron James getting fouled and being able to bet on a live prop of whether he's going to make zero one or two free throws there's just not enough time but I think the half inning break um, and being able to bet live that next half inning or maybe the rest of the game or whatever because I don't think yeah. people have a lot of time to watch three hour games but they'll have a beer i.e. making a bet for the next half inning or the next two innings or the rest of the first five or whatever it is pick it up in the seventh inning make a bet the rest of the way and baseball could use the spike in stimulation for fans. I think that, to me, without the metrics in front of me from behind the counter, that would seem like it's a great opportunity Absolutely. in the U.S. I, sports market. Yeah, right. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, we, saw, we opened the sports book at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. I was there in August. We launched it in mid-July last year. And it was 10.30 at night, and I brought a friend over, and there were lines at every window at 10.30 at night. And I was like, all the games are going on. What's going on? And, and it, the, our general manager was with me. He said, Everybody's going up and they're betting the over-unders on runs every inning. So they walk, they run up, they wait till the inning ends and then they go up to the window and place a bet for the next inning. So it's just, baseball, I think it could be a... Uh, I think a it's gonna problem. help other American sports too. I mean, I hope it helps the WNBA as well and get more interest for that league and 
You also have the AFL and the AAF. Like there's now there's always a reason to be vested in the game. And I think it's going to grow a lot of the American sports as well. Um, on a fun sort of segue, uh, this was the first year that people could legally bet on the Oscars. And we saw some sort of interesting things happen there. Um, specifically, an online rumor was spread about the best director, um, there being some prior knowledge of who the best director was and his odds sort of fell because of that. Um, how did you guys handle that situation? Yep. Yeah. You um, it out two months ago? So that? <laughs> we, we, did, we had no preconceived notion that we were going to be allowed to take bets on the Oscars, and so we were excited when the regulators in New Jersey opened it up. It's not a huge business opportunity. It's more about you know, doing something different, getting the PR value, making people aware. Um, yeah, the, the, the director you're referring to was about 45 to 1 on the board, I think dropped all the way down to 5 to 1 because all of a sudden we saw a flood of activity coming in. Um, we took it off the board, you know, we sort of assessed it. You know, I think there was a tweet by Darren Ravel that sort of, you know, uh, exacerbated it and we kind of assessed that probably if somebody had inside... that tweet from someone. Pro probably if, yeah. if somebody had inside information, Darren was not the first person on their list to let know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we just decided, because it wasn't worth it at that point, to, we just left it off the board. But you know, we, were, we were comfortable with the integrity of it. I mean, they have that on absolute lockdown, that information. So, yeah. Sharon, did you guys have any issues with that? Or yeah, you just... you know, same thing. We, we took it down, too. There just got to be this nervousness and conservative of being early in the game and, and was conservative and took it down. But I think these kind of bets are so fun. With low limits, just getting folks that wouldn't normally bet into interested in betting and back in the day William Hill set the odds on who shot JR you know not not very different than that and I think there are going to be fun cultural things like that that we're going to want to play in and as long as the the limits are low it's just a chance to introduce people to to the game this audience has no idea who JR is <laughs> <laughs> oh you, you made you my forgot, day thank you forgot that <laughs> now I feel old that the elections will be next so well so this think, is actually I like you're so, allowed to bet on that that's different okay so this is, a, this is actually a really important thing I think we need to talk a little bit about, right? And, and I think we all agree that these types of prop bets and are really fun and they're marketing and like there's no harm, no foul, that kind of thing. I think the challenge, and this is something, Doug, that you and I talked about, we were talking about offstage, is that um, a lot of writers, mainstream writers, don't understand that these aren't liquid markets, that these aren't really predictive markets. These are just fun prop bets and because the odds are what they are, what responsibility do you think the media has to become much more educated about betting so they can cover it in a, in a more meaningful, substantive way than sort of the way that it's been covered up until now? And congratulations on your show, new show. Doug's got a new show on ESPN, ESPN that he's hosting. ESPN has a new show, yeah, Daily Wager, starting a week from Monday, March 11th, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN News, Monday through Friday. So Check your local listings for time. Right, exactly. Uh, so look, I mean, I think the... I'll come around to answer your question, but I think I've been in a lot of rundown meetings, whether it be SportsCenter or even earlier in my career prior to ESPN, just trying to figure out what's like the right show for the audience and what's the appetite of the audience. Like the night of the Super Bowl, it's pretty obvious you should probably lead with the highlights of the Super Bowl, right? But on a every day, like what do you, for a national sports show, what do you do? Like SportsCenter producers have to figure out because obviously the appetite for certain games is different in the Northeast, West Coast, South, you know, throughout the course of the United States, obviously. So do you, like yesterday, would you lead with the Lakers and the new lineup and LeBron and will they miss the playoffs or preview big college games with the bubble? 
and March Madness around the corner. And there's just a way to kind of figure it all out because there's so much sports going on all the time. If some hockey guy might score six goals in a game, where do you put that in the show if a lot of places aren't big um, hockey fans? But with that, sports, is be sports betting has become an important component to that, right? What is the appetite of the generic sports consumer? Well, it's contextually. So we try to provide odds as a metric that provides context, like the Bryce Harper news. Once that's announced, what is Vegas saying about that? What does it mean? And trying to educate the viewer and serve the sports fan, sports fan in that capacity, like we've always done, whether it be highlights, post-game sound inside the locker room. But the, the betting market is interesting and applicable, even if you're not a... Yeah, but the Bryce Harper one is a perfect example, right? Because the Bryce Harper one is not a liquid market either, right? It's probably just small, like up a few places. They're not taking big bets on it. But I'm not it's saying, not the same it's not as the saying Bryce like Harper, which place, which team is he going to choose? It's the reaction of once he chose the Phillies, okay. what happened to the season, sure. win total, division odds, yep. pennant odds, World Series odds, and then maybe the, by equivalent, what happened to the Nats and things like that. So you're right. The the problem with those, though, is that they're not two-sided markets, so they're not real markets. Right, they're right. one-way markets, so you want to use reputable odds that aren't skewed, so to speak. But you have to say that when you present that information, you have to say it's a one-way bet, right? It's not a two-way bet. And you have to explain that what it means, and in baseball, one player is not going to significantly change the odds as maybe like LeBron choosing one team changes the season win total drastically. So all that's contextual, and you're right. I think much like we were talking about the leagues are learning as they go along and fearing the worst, I think there's media outlets that are learning as well. Um, even when I worked in Las Vegas, there were producers in Las Vegas new newsrooms who did not know how to look up a point spread. And they weren't sports producers, but still, that's part of your, what your audience, your consumer and your target audience, like you have an obligation to do that. So I think media is, I can't speak for other outlets, but everybody's learning as they go along. Fortunately, we have a lot of people at ESPN who are, have been immersed in the space for a while who won't make mistakes, but you're right. Like, the, 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 the odds offshore of where Bryce Harper's gonna choose, that's kinda in the same space as like the Oscar betting. And it's not a liquid market, and it's not, it's lower limits, I would imagine, and it's more fun, but that speaks to the entertainment concept that I was referring to earlier. I think there's a large entertainment component to this that everyone's trying to balance. All right, I think that's all we have time for. I want to thank the panelists for tolerating me, so thank you guys. <laughs> if you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.